Let's open our Bibles this morning to John's Gospel, chapter 6. It's a fairly lengthy chapter, and we've been uh, going through it. I'm hoping to spend at least another week uh, in this chapter. The week before last, we looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000, and actually there were more than 5,000. We know that the Bible tells us in the other Gospels that it was 5,000 men, but that doesn't include the women and children. And so we're looking at least somewhere between 10 and 15,000, maybe even upward toward 20,000 people that Jesus actually fed that day. And how God can take just very little and he can multiply it and, and do great things with very little. He doesn't need a lot. You know, in America, the, the motto is might makes right, but in God's economy, that's not true. Oftentimes, you know, God uses the, the small things, the beggarly elements, the, the things that nobody wants, the cast-offs. Do you feel like a cast-off? Well, if you do, God can use you. If you feel like you're really something and that you're hot stuff, you might, be, you might, be, you might find yourself being put on a shelf for a little while. Isn't that what God did to, to uh, Moses? He thought he was a big shot. Spent 40 years in, in Egypt, the son of Pharaoh, going to all the best schools, the, all the Ivy League schools. He had everything. And God had to take him out into the desert, in the far side of the desert, to tend his father Jethro's flock for another 40 years to get the Egypt out of Moses. God doesn't need fancy. He doesn't need big. He likes to take small things. And that's why I feel like I can qualify because I, I I'm a small thing and God can use small things. And I pray that you feel the same way too. It's a good place to be. The world around us says, oh, you're, you poor thing. You're suffering from low self-esteem. Well, that's the problem with America. That's the problem with humankind actually is we think about ourselves at all. We think too much of ourselves, how we look. We think our whole life is absorbed. Everything, our culture, our economy is based on us. What about me? I deserve this. I should look like that. But God doesn't see things that way. And he can use very little and do great things with it. And that was really what we looked at the year, or the, the year before last, the week before last. <clears throat> but now we look at this moment in Jesus' life. And let me read it to you. We're going to begin in chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, down through 21. I think that's all we'll look at this morning. But notice, on the heels of this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 or the 10,000 or the 15,000, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. And then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. And so when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were afraid, but he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Father, we just thank you for this word today. Pray that you'd encourage us in it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
This passage was a real blessing, has been a real blessing to me, and, and especially this week because our, our campsite in the Adirondacks was right on a peninsula overlooking Lake Sacandaga. And, and literally, from where I was sitting in my hammock, oftentimes preparing for this morning's service, looking out over this lake. And it, the shape of it, at least from my vantage point, was very much like what I've seen on the Sea of Galilee. And just sitting there and thinking over this passage and just uh, mulling it over was really a great treat. And you know, I'll be honest with you, there were times where I was tempted to just walk out there and just see what would happen. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not kidding. And then the Lord had to kind of remind me that there was a reason that he did that. And there was a reason that he allowed Peter to come out onto the water to reveal his deity, certainly. But there was no need for the Lord to allow me to walk on water. It would just be, it wouldn't be really necessary. But I'll I'll be honest with you, and I thought, you know, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to step out in faith and do it. And and I have this, these two sores on my feet on both sides, and I'd be walking out on a very rocky area, and I decided, you know, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> I know that God could do it if he wanted to, but there's reasons for everything he does, and um, we know that. But this passage that we're looking at is the fifth sign of the seven signs that we have here that have been cherry-picked by the Holy Spirit through the, the, the Apostle John, to reveal to us who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, right? We looked at the first one, the changing of the water into wine, the healing of the official son in Capernaum, healing an invalid at the pool of Bethesda, feeding the 5,000, which we looked at the week before last, and now walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. And so we see this, and in this passage this morning, we're going to be looking at three different things that from this passage. The first one is the obvious, the very notable miracle of Jesus defying science. Follow the science. Well, you, you defy science if you walk out on a body of water, wouldn't you? Aren't there many who would say that's not possible? Must have been a shallow water. Must have been a really shallow lake for Jesus to... No, it was pretty deep. It still is, by the way. But no, the notable miracle, we're going to talk about that. And equally notable is Peter walking out on the water. We'll look at that. He's the only person in history other than Jesus to walk on water. And yet Peter was the one. Because of his impetuous character, he he has gotten a lot of uh, bad press over the years. Because of his denying of Jesus and just his impetuous nature. But he's the only one who got out of the boat. We'll look at that. And also just the trials in the ministry that cause us to grow in our faith. As those men were leaving a very notable miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 or more, right on the heels of that, they walk out into the boat, into a storm. And these were seasoned fishermen. They knew the waters of Galilee, but they were scared. And they had been rowing in the very early hours of the morning. They were tired. They were wet. They were discouraged, not making much headway. But I love the Bible and the wonderful tapestry that the Gospels provide us because what it does is it gives us different vantage points of the same event. Putting together as a whole, provide a, they, they give us a composite of every event that we look at. 
And in addition to John chapter 6, this event of John, or Jesus, excuse me, walking on the water is also given to us in two of the other Gospels, Matthew chapter 14 and Mark chapter 6. I'd include, encourage you actually to read those chapters and put the pieces together, and we're hoping to do that this morning. But the Gospel of Matthew is the only one that gives us the account of Peter briefly walking on the water. And I love that. The only one to walk out on the water. If Jesus called you to walk out on the water, would you? Many of you this morning who are here and perhaps those watching, you have walked out on the water. God has brought you to a place in your life where you've had to step out when there doesn't seem to be a, any firm footing whatsoever. Perhaps it's a loss of loved ones or perhaps it's an unexpected illness that that cannot, there's no cure for. He brings you out in those places where you had never thought yourself to be in. And you never would have chosen that road for yourself, but you find yourself there. And what do you do? What will you do? <clears throat> what can we do but rest in Christ? There's really nowhere else to go. Where are you going to go? Are you going to go to drugs and all the other things to kind of numb the pain to numb the discouragement, believe me, at the end of that, you're going to come back. You're going to be worse off than when you first started, trust me. Many have tried. Maybe many of you have tried. And you know this from experience. So it's a fool's errand to go out and fill our lives with anything other than Jesus Christ. There's no other reason to go anywhere else. He is the one. Didn't Peter say that? Lord, where are we going to go? You're the one who has the words of eternal life. They finally got it. That's where we need to get, folks. We need to get to that place where he is the only place. He's the only one that we can go to. He's the only one I love to go to. This miracle takes place on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And remember, just prior to this, we saw the feeding of the 5,000. Mark's gospel tells us that they traveled from Bethsaida, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and they traveled over toward Capernaum to the east side. Some believe that there might be a small village, a fishing village, very near to Capernaum called Bethsaida of Galilee. We see that in Mark's gospel. He mentions that name. And he also says, another gospel says they were going in that direction. So there's a very good possibility that this Bethsaida of Galilee is just another little fishing village along the coast there, not too far away from Capernaum. And of course, right to the north of that, or to, excuse me, to the south of that is Gennesaret, which is ultimately where they ended up as they came across those waters of the Sea of Galilee with Jesus in the boat with them after this storm. And Gennesaret is this plain, and when we go to Israel, this is one of the places that we spend five or six days, and we, spend, uh, we, we go out from there to all these different places over a period of six days, and you're right there on the shore and right to the south of Nof Ginnisar, where we stay, it's a beautiful place. Right to the south of that, just next door, literally, you can look out your hotel or your kibbutz and you can see Magdala, the place where Mary of Magdalene was from. And it's all right there. And you're on very good, solid ground there. That this is a, Jesus and his disciples were all over this place. It really is a wonderful, wonderful place. But this is where Jesus went from. He went from the east. That's where the miracle of the 5,000 occurred. 
over there on the east side, and now he's going to travel with his disciples over to the west side to Capernaum or to Bethsaida, ultimately ending in Gennesaret. Notice in verse 15 in our text this morning, it says, Therefore, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, that he departed again to the mountain by himself. Isn't it true that man will always crown another man king who, they can, who can satisfy their needs? Whether it's a physical need, whether it's a political need, whatever it is, if you can feed my stomach and you can provide for my future, I'll gladly put a crown on your head and call you king. And most men would have gladly received a king, a crown. Everyone wants to rule, don't they? It's not a safe place to really desire to rule unless God has called you to it. Whatever it is, if God hasn't called you to it, it's going to be a mess. (laughs) But if he's called you to do it, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to grow. Most men would have gladly received a crown. But even though Jesus, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, he didn't come to glorify himself. It says in John 8, 29, it says... Jesus said, and he who sent me is with me, and the Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. That was Jesus' heart's desire, to do the things that the Lord, the Father, had sent him to do. He wanted to glorify him. And see, that's our goal. That's our purpose in life, is to honor Jesus, to glorify Jesus. Not to glorify man, not to glorify a movement, but to glorify him. He is the only one that we should glorify. Glorify Jesus. Oh, Lord, help. And you know, because he is the king of all creation, he wasn't going to be king apart from the cross. Notice they were willing to make him a king, and he could have been the king of the Jews. But Jesus had an understanding that his kingdom was not just by the putting of the crown of his head and, and maybe overthrowing the yoke of Rome from them. He could have done that very easily. And the day is coming where it's not just going to be Rome, but it's going to be all the kingdoms of the world. Amen? And I'm looking forward to that day because I don't like what I'm seeing. Never did, actually. But there was no kingdom without the cross. There were no shortcuts. And the devil offered Jesus shortcuts early in his ministry. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 4, there were four different temptations. Each of those, and the devil, he didn't use uh, just anything. He didn't go to guideposts and look at something and say, Jesus, did you know about this? No, he used the word of God. Satan is no fool in that regard. He knows to use scripture. If he's going to deceive the son of God or think he can deceive it, he better be on the same playing field. But of course he never was and never will be. But he uses scripture to corner Jesus and Jesus always responded with scripture. But in the fourth temptation, notice what happens. It says again, the devil took him up on a mountain exceedingly high and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. I will give you, Satan says, the audacity Who died and made him king? Good question. 
All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. The men wanted to make Jesus a king. And even the devil says, there's a shorter, there's an easier way for this, Jesus. You don't have to go to the cross. I know you don't look, you're not looking forward to being separated from the father for a time. I know you're not looking forward to the torture and the things that you're going to go through. I know you're not going to look forward to people spitting on you and covering your head and hitting you with a rod and putting a crown of, thorn, a crown of thorns on your head and, and, and piercing you with the, with the sword on the side. I know you're not looking forward to any of that, but you know, there's a way around this. The Cliff's Notes version of salvation. There's a way around this. Easy, short, easy. Satan would say you don't have to go to the cross to gain a kingdom, but the whole world, as you know, is under the authority and the power of Satan today. Temporarily. And notice Jesus didn't argue with him about this. Even though Psalm 24 says, what does it say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is, it's true. The earth belongs to the Lord by means of creation. He created it. But for now, for a period of time, and that period has been for a few thousand years now, Satan has been the ruler of this world. He has been the prince of the power of the air. In Ephesians, Paul says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Yes, Satan, the prince of the power of the air. You think it's any mistake that the storms and the hurricanes and the tornadoes, God allows him to do these things, and they're all destructive, aren't they? And that's just the M.O. of Satan. Destruction. He's the prince of the power of the air. Not only the air, but the air waves. <laughs> he controls the media. Anybody notice that lately? He's got them all in his hand. He's, oh, I got them. What does John's gospel tell us? Jesus speaking, he says, And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe, and I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Yes, Satan, the ruler of this world. It ultimately belongs to Jesus. But for now, the ruler of this world is Satan. But Jesus' kingdom was going to come by way of the cross and not by any other means. No other crown, no other means. And the devil loves to encourage us with this idea, this phrase of the ends justifying the means. That means that do anything you have to to get the, the end result. It doesn't matter the process, just get to the end result. If you've got to lie, cheat, and steal to get to the end, it doesn't matter. Just get to the end. It doesn't matter how you get there, what way, by, by, by crook or by trick or whatever you've got to do. Just do it because the ends justify the means. But we know as Christians that the ends never justify the means. And the devil will always offer shortcuts to encourage you also, to avoid a true walk of faith in Christ Jesus. You know, there is, in, in many fellowships, there's usually, at one point or another in that church's history, some wealthy man or woman who belongs to the church, who, who wants to give a lot of money to the church. And most churches are hurting. 
And then someone will come along and they'll, who's a millionaire and they'll say, well, I will do this. I will you know, build you know, whatever it is that you need to do and I'll write it off of my taxes and I'll give you this, you know, build you a new church if you want. But there's one stipulation. I want to be an elder and I also want my name on that building. I want everyone to see who was responsible for this. Me. Me. Put on the sequin suit and get the spotlight just on him, blind him with his teeth. You know, he's got that, he's got that Pepsodent commercial thing happening. <laughs> it's all about him. And the Lord goes, no, thank you. Keep your money. That's a test for many pastors. It's happened. I know of people that's happened too. It's only a test. There's always a shortcut. But at what cost? So Jesus, he's not just a military, he's not a military conqueror, he's not just a meal ticket, even though they wanted to crown him king. Later on, we'll see, next week, we'll see in this gospel, where Jesus would say to these people, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs or the miracle, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. I'm not just a meal ticket. I'm so much more than that. But man, unfortunately, we're fickle, aren't we? We just kind of go where the source is, where, where, wherever we have the needs and the need is met, we go to that place. And everyone cries out when they are in need. But when the need subsides, we're back to our normal, ornery selves, selfish selves. Do you remember 9-11? It crippled us for a, a time, and then we got back to our normal selves again. Many people choose to follow Jesus. They wanted to put a crown on his head. But what Jesus are you following? What are your reasons for following Jesus? I've said this before, but if your Jesus allows you to continue in heterosexual fornication, is that why you're following him? Or if your Jesus that you've made up in your own mind allows you to continue to remain homosexual, and it's okay. There's a problem with that. Our culture has made a God out of love and all of, its, all of its ramifications. But love without God's boundaries is what? It's rebellion. It's sin. Our culture is trying hard to redefine marriage. Redefining so many words. You notice that? Everything is changing. Everything is being redefined. Marriage, what love is, what love isn't. Much of what is love today is nothing more than just lust and self-gratification and selfishness. And there are many pastors in the country who support this thing. They'll support homosexual unions and same-sex unions. Because they think it's okay, parishioner, are you going to embrace it? Just because your pastor may say something and, and may say that it's okay? Or are you going to read the word of God and know what the Bible says? And if you do, you'll know that that is not okay. Are you going to believe if the Pope says it's okay for same-sex unions? Because he has. There's an article. Pope Francis made his comments about civil unions in the film called Francesco, which was created by a homosexual film director, Evgeny Efanevsky, the film premiered on October 21st of 2020 on the occasion of the Rome Film Festival. And speaking of homosexual civil unions, the Pope said, 
What we have to create is a civil union law. That way we are legally covered. I stood up for that, he said. He stood up for that. You have a problem with that. Which is greater, your definition? Or the culture's definition of love? Or God's definition? The one who defined it, the one who is in the embodiment of it. What are the reasons that you are searching for Christ? What are your reasons for following him? To just get a a full stomach, to maybe some blessing to help you along the way in your life? My reason is pretty simple. (laughs) I don't want to go to hell. Does anybody here want to go to hell? Raise your hand. I don't see too many people raising their hands. Yeah, none of us want to go. My reason is simple. I don't want to go there, but I know that he loves me, that Jesus loves me. He died for me, and I want to give everything to him. I want to give my life to him, the first fruits of my strength, my, my heart, my life, everything. I want to give it to him. He alone deserves it. I want to go to heaven where there are pleasures forevermore, holy pleasures, not the pleasures of the earth. What does it say in Psalm 16? David says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What are your reasons? At the end of the age when the church is removed and the Antichrist comes into power, He'll perform miracles, make grandiose promises, give a false hope, and people are going to flock to him. They'll gladly crown him king, and he will gladly be crowned king. Coupled with all of this, people will worship him, or there will be no buying or selling or anything unless you receive a mark on your right hand or your forehead. We looked at that when we were in the book of Revelation. And I believe that what happened this last year was just a preview, a foreshadowing, a dry run, if you will, of what's coming. And we are being conditioned for that very thing. Thank God the church will be, the real church, the church of Jesus Christ will be removed prior to the Antichrist unveiling. The Bible says that. We will be removed But I believe there will be more of these pandemics that we've just gone through that have really changed things. They are the perfect pretext to force us into submission and many other things. Why do I believe this? Because Jesus said so. What did he say in Matthew 24? Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom and there will be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in various places. These are things that will precede the tribulation period. Even now we're starting to smell it. You know like when you're, if you're at a campsite, which I was recently, you're walking down the, the path and you can smell a little bit of something in the air. It smells like somebody's cooking chicken. And as you get closer to where the, the source is, it start, you can really smell it. Well, we're smelling it right now. We're picking up the vapor and pretty soon it's going to be a cloud all around and the church will be removed before that cloud, but we're already starting to smell the remnants of these things. But this pestilence is literally a plague. These thing, this whole thing was very effective, what happened last year and the powers that be. Back in our text, verse 16, what does it say? 
Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and they got into the boat and they went over the sea. Remember, they're on the east side of the Galilee. Now they're going to go toward the west. Notice, toward Capernaum, which is a fishing village. And it was already dark and Jesus had not come to them because Jesus had went up to a mountain to pray alone and he told his disciples to get in the boat and go to the other side. The other gospels tell us that. In fact, in Matthew chapter 14, what does it say? That immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into the mountain to pray by himself. Now when evening came, he was alone there. And this is why, again, why it's good to, to read all the gospel accounts of a certain event because you put them together and you get a, an understanding of the meaning of everything. And when you fit them all together, it's a wonderful jigsaw puzzle. So I'd encourage you to do that. It says in verse 18 in our text, says, Then the sea arose because a great wind was blowing. A great wind was blowing. A storm had come up. And in Matthew and Mark's gospel, when you read that, it tells us that Jesus came to them walking on the water at the fourth watch of the evening, which the fourth watch is somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Because 6 p.m. to 12 or to 9 is the first watch, 9 to 12 the second watch, 12 to 3 is the third watch, 3 to 6 is the fourth watch. So we're talking early in the morning. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a boat that early in the morning because of some calamity that's happened and you're out there? And I've been in situations like that in the Gulf of Mexico and it really brings you to an end of yourself. And there they were, out in the middle. And this storm came up. And you know what's interesting is Jesus knew that this storm was going to come. And he knew and he saw his disciples as he was there praying on the mountain. He saw them toiling and rowing. And he could have allowed it not to happen. He could have kept it from happening. But they had just finished this wonderful miracle of the feeding of the loaves. And isn't it true that sometimes right on the heels of a victory of some kind of spiritual awakening, there's always a trial right after it. I don't know, but it seems like that is often the case. And God often uses trials to cause us to grow and depend upon him. He may not keep the trial from coming, but he will be with you and with you in and through it. We see that in Daniel chapter 3. Remember when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, more often known to us as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they refused to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue, that they were thrown into the fire, into the furnace. They were thrown in there, and they weren't burnt. The only thing that burned was the ropes that were on their hands, and they loaded them up with all their clothing. They were going to be like candles. They were going to be like fireplace kindling in that furnace. They were going to go up immediately as soon as they got in there, but it didn't happen. Only the robes burned off. And then Nebuchadnezzar, being puzzled by this, he looks in and he sees that there's someone else walking around amidst the three of them, one who looks like the Son of Man. And who was that in there, in the trial with them? It was Jesus. And they, they were just fine to stay in there. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar's getting all bothered by it. He commanded them to come out. But they're like, no, we could stay in here. That's fine. Just... 
But he brings them out. And the Lord often allows these trials so that we will grow in our faith. Just as these men, these seasoned fishermen, are going across the water, a trial immediately arises in front of them where they're in peril. The sea rising. I'm sure that they could all swim, but guess what? When you're, if you're out of shape, you've got to swim a couple miles. You better be in really good shape. So verse 19, it says, So when they had rowed about, the King James has 25 or 30 furlongs, which is equivalent to about three to four miles. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were very afraid, and naturally so, because it's never occurred before. Have you seen anybody walking on the water? Can you imagine... I thought about this as I was sitting in my hammock overlooking the lake and just picturing myself out in a boat trying to cross and the wind and the waves are just coming and thinking, I'm, this is it. <laughs> and then to see somebody walking. And the other gospel accounts say that Jesus was, he was, at, he was walking as if he was going to continue walking past them. That's a puzzle, isn't it? Sorry you guys are in such a problem. Doing fine out here. He allowed it. He allowed this trial. And notice what it says in verse 20. But he said to them, and, and again, they were, they were afraid. They thought they had seen a ghost because it defied physics. The Galilee is deep. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Literally, he said, I am. Does that ring a bell? He said to them, I am. And for every Jew in that boat, all of his disciples, the Lord is like reeling them in like fish. You want to know who I am? I am. <laughs> who are you? I am. Do not be afraid. That ought to brought them to an understanding of what he is, who he is. He's none other than the Logos, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Exodus 3, remember, Moses says, Indeed, when I came to the children of Israel and I say to them, this is the encounter when Moses saw the burning bush that wasn't consumed, but Jesus, God, was speaking to him through that fiery bush that was not consumed. And Moses is having this dialogue with the Lord and he said to God indeed when I came to the children of Israel when I come to them and say to them the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they say to me what is his name what shall I say and God said to Moses I am who I am and he said thus you shall say to the children of Israel I am has sent me to you moreover God said to Moses thus you shall say to the children of Israel the Lord God of your fathers the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. It's my name forever. But Jesus said, I am. And again, very probable that Jesus allowed this just to reveal his deity to his disciples. To reveal that he had command over all of nature. I don't have the ability to stop the rain. God can give that ability. He gave it to Elijah for it to stop for three and a half years. 
I don't have that unless God gives it to me, empowers me for his purposes, not my own, because my own are very selfish. I wanted to walk across Lake Sacandaga that day as I was really in a crisis of obedience. Or not in a crisis of obedience. I was in a crisis of, I think I can do this. But Lord, if I don't, I'm going to hurt my feet really bad because I'm going to step out on what I think is glass and I'm going to hit the bottom with all those rocks. But not for my own selfish purposes. For his purposes, he can do it. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Because where John's gospel here in verse 20, where it it ends, Matthew's gospel in chapter 14, verse 28, picks up where John leaves off here. And this is significant. Because Jesus did the most notable miracle of walking on the water. But now look. What it says in Matthew 14, it says, verse 28, it says that Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it's you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. Can you imagine that? Lord, if that's really you, cause me to come. And Jesus like, what's, what's, what, why are you waiting? Do it. Come on. Come on, Peter. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw, notice, when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid and beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now Peter, other than Jesus, as I said before, is the only person in history to walk on water. And yet he's the one who denied Jesus three times. He's the one who is impetuous. But he's the only one. Where were the other disciples? And what were they thinking when Jesus says, Peter, come out of the boat? They're going, (laughs) watch this. I can't wait to see Peter get wet. He's going to fall. He's going to sink like a lead right to the bottom. We'll see what happens now. And and to much to their chagrin, they're like, Jesus gives Peter the ability. And notice, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus and his focus, He was fine. But when he started to look at the wind and the water and the waves and started to get unnerved about these things, the very natural things that are very natural to us, that's when he began to sink. How many of us have been willing to do the same thing? And how come the other disciples didn't want to do the same thing? Can you imagine what it would have looked like having a bunch of men walking on the water? Can you imagine the people on land when they finally got over, if there was somebody on land seeing this group of men with Jesus walking on the water? That would have been a day to remember, certainly. How many times does something seem impossible and we don't even ask the Lord? Let's not let the impossible, although it is very natural for us to do that, let's not allow the impossible to keep us from asking It honors the Lord, doesn't it, when we put him above all natural processes that he has created. May the Lord grow our faith, mine as well. May he grow our faith. Because I'm not where I want to be. I'm not yet where I want to be. And I know you probably feel the same way, but notice in verse 31. 
It says, immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? See, Peter believed in the Lord. He trusted in him and had faith enough to walk out on the boat, walk out of the boat onto the water, but it was only when he began to see the waves and those things. And again, notice that this happened right on the heels of a spiritual victory in a sense. A miracle, a notable miracle where their, their eyes were popping out of their heads and their jaws were dropping for what Jesus had done. And there is a lesson here, and it's pretty simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Even right now when the whole world seems to be reeling and you know, like a drunken man, keep your eyes, church, on Jesus Christ. He's the only good news. He's the only truthful news you will ever receive. His word is true. Didn't he say that? My word is true. So therefore, it behooves us to read his word. If we can do that, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. If we can keep our eyes on Jesus, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Isn't that the song we sing? So when things around us begin to fall apart and the wind and the, wave, the waves, the circumstances of life are challenging us, buffeting us, tearing us apart, causing us to lose sleep, the calamities that are all around us, if we get our eyes off of Jesus Christ, not of the problems, we will seek to solve them in our own strength. But what a peace there is for the believer who can consistently do this, who can keep their eyes on Jesus and to trust him. What does it tell us in Proverbs? We know this verse very well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, disciples, as you're looking at the boisterous water. You know this very well. You've grown up with this. But now you've never done this. You've never stepped out onto the water, Peter. You've never done that. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Not with your understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will direct your path. He will direct your path. Sometimes it is like that. Sometimes our lives are like that. Our Christian lives are like that sometimes. And it's not blind faith. I don't believe in blind faith. Because the Lord will cause you to step out and it's not blind because of you know who it is that you believe in. And sometimes you're forced to step out where there seems to be no ground underneath you. Uncharted territory. If you haven't been there, and most of you have, you will be there from time and time again. But even though we don't like trials, they are important in our walk as we grow because they cause us to exercise faith and trust. As these men are walking, you know, going across this Galilee, it was a trial for them. It was a trial. And trials are good for us too. We don't like them. But James tells us, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what does Peter tell us? He says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you've been grieved by various trials, that the gen here it is, that the genuineness of your faith, why did all this happen? Why did the, 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 the ship and, and everything just be reeling with the way? and why were they afraid their faith was being exercised like that rubber band that I've got here <laughs> Peter, James and John <laughs> their faith was like this and God says I need, I need to do this 
I need to stretch you. And I'm going to continue stretching you. And when you feel like you've had enough, you're going to relax at that point. And then later on, I'm going to stretch you a little more. And that's what's happened to this rubber band. It used to have its elasticity. But because of use, it's, it's gotten more pliable and easy to work with. It probably used to be smaller than this, but because of use, it's, it's allowed to expand its borders and its normal facilities, faculties. And we're like that too. I feel like a rubber band sometimes. Do you? Being challenged. But God allows trials and difficulties in our life as you know, to bring us to, to an end of ourselves, at the very least. Nationally, he brought Israel to an end of themselves as he brought them through the Red Sea. They, too, had to walk by faith, didn't they? And I love the passage in Exodus chapter 14 because it, even though they didn't walk on top of the water, they walked through the water, God bringing them through the water. Very similar, but now nearly two million people are going through on dry ground with a wall of water on each side of them as they all went through, and then when they got to the other side, God says, Moses, take your staff down, because the Egyptians are coming after you, and they're history. You're not going to see them anymore again. And that happened, didn't it? Nationally, they were brought to that place where they had to do that. But what about personally? God allows trials in us personally that we might trust and have faith in him. Remember in Acts chapter 12 when Peter was sleeping in a cell after they had arrested him again. He was shackled to uh, Roman guards. And what does it say? It says there in verse 6 of, of, um, of Acts chapter 12 that when Herod was about to bring him out that night as he was shackled in the prison, that Peter was sleeping bound with chains between two soldiers and the guards were before the doors who were keeping the prison he completely trusted in the Lord as he was sleeping, knowing that his time was probably coming to an end. If they killed my Savior and they got me in this prison, I have a pretty good feeling what's going to happen to me next because he had already, Agrippa too, already killed James, the brother of John, with the sword prior to this. And so Peter's thinking, well... Here we go. This is my place. This is my time. But notice he was sleeping peacefully, trusting. He trusted the Lord. I think by this time Peter's like, you know, Lord, whatever you want to do, whatever you got to do in my life, that's a good place to be. Whatever it is that you want to do. And sometimes God allows these trials and these disappointments, these difficulties in our life as divine appointments. Remember when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail. They sang praises at midnight, remember? And an earthquake, as they sang praises, God brought an earthquake and shook the foundations of that prison so much so that they became unshackled from the walls. They became unshackled and the prison guard whose who's Life, it was dependent upon to keep those prisoners secure. He sees that all of a sudden now they're free. And Paul says, no, we haven't gone anywhere. And he comes in with a, with a lantern and says, knowing that his life would have been on the line if any of those men escaped. 
He had been hearing the hymns and the praises that Paul and Silas were singing at midnight. And this man was thinking to himself. And instead of getting out of the prison, they stayed, they submitted to the where God had had them. And this man comes in trembling and says, what must I do to be saved? And that very night, as a result of their trial, their trouble that they went through, what happened? It was a divine appointment, wasn't it? When they first got into the prison, they're thinking, what a bummer this is. But then as the night began to proceed, I'm sure that Peter, or or, or Paul and Silas, I'm sure they're thinking to themselves, now we know why we were put here. (laughs) There was a whole family. The prison guard and his family got saved. They brought him out and washed off their stripes. What an amazing thing. Notice they were trusting in the Lord and not panicking out of fear. But God would use this trial in their lives not only to bring them out but to save others. I love a verse in Ephesians 5 that says, See then that you walk circumspectly. Literally, walk carefully. Circumspect means, circle means around and spec means to see. So are you watching around you? Are you living your lives where everything around you, you're aware of what's going on and you have a pretty good idea? of the things that come out of your mouth, the things that you do, knowing that you live in a Christian, as a, you live in a fishbowl. Everyone, believers and unbelievers, are looking at your life, wondering, is your faith going to hold up? When this event happens in your life, when this trial comes, is your faith going to hold up? Are you still going to be believing in Jesus? When he takes away your spouse and he takes away your mother, and your father in the same week, and that's happened in this church. Where are you going to go? Is your faith going to hold up? Is your walk with the Lord going to still remain consistent? People are looking. They're watching how we deal with things. But the jailer and his family, they saw And they heard Paul and Silas, and it brought them to faith. I love Psalm 40. What does it say? It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, David says, and he inclined to me. He heard my cry, and he brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And that's literally what Paul and Silas in that jail where they were at. They were in the innermost part of the dungeon. The darkest, the smelliest, the mustiest, the most (laughs) disease-laden. And they're in there singing praises at midnight when the earthquake occurred. And David says, I waited patiently for you, Lord, and, I inclined, and, and you inclined to me and heard my cry. You brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. You set my feet upon a rock, established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth that, you know, as they praise God and praise to our God, and many will see it. And who heard it? Who saw it? And not only heard it, but saw the faith of Paul and Silas that day, that Philippian jailer. And he would take those men home, wipe off their stripes, and he and his entire family would be saved. A divine appointment as a result of a trial, as a result of calamity in the life of, of a believer. You may find yourself in your trial to be in it, and it was a divine appointment And there's no other way that you would have gotten to that place except God. 
Yesterday we were coming home from the Adirondacks and about a minute ahead of us, unbeknownst to me at the time, a woman pulled out in front of a motorcycle and the guy was going pretty fast in a head-on collision. And we had just come upon the accident. I had the camper in the back and I had to slow down and I, I get out of the car and I run over there and the motorcycle, the guy in the motorcycle, it, he was a mess. He was dead, instantly killed. I didn't know he was dead at the moment. He looked like he had, he had died. So the guy who was driving the car, he gets out and he's doing compressions, trying to get the guy to live, and he was not responding for minutes and minutes and minutes. He's just tirelessly doing it until the EMTs arrived. And I'm sitting there at the head of this guy just praying for him, not knowing what was happening, but there was no pulse. It was a mess. It was my divine appointment. I have no idea what that was all about. Maybe the guy who was doing the compressions, his wife was in shock in the car, and there were other people gathering around. But we all have a divine appointment. And honestly, I wanted to get home. We had been camping for a week, and I wanted to get home. And believe me, those roads in the Adirondacks, you, you, when you have to turn around and go somewhere, sometimes you're hours off course, right? We found another way, thank God, but I was disappointed at first, but then I realized afterwards, Lord, this was a divine appointment. I don't know what it was all about, but we just pray. The guy doing the compressions was doing all the work to no avail, unfortunately. But sometimes God allows these things, doesn't he? He allows these divine appointments. Peter had a divine appointment that day. So did all the other disciples. There are many other instances of this in the book of Acts. In Acts 26, with 27 and 28, of Paul being shipwrecked on the island of Malta en route to Rome where God was going to send him to appeal before Caesar. How many things in that trip? I want you to read Acts 27 and 28 and understand how many things... Had Paul not been on, the, on that boat that day, all those men would have perished in that trip. But because God had his man on the boat, he prayed. God spoke to him and told him exactly what to do to the saving of all those men. That was a divine appointment. Paul thought he was going to Rome and to talk to Caesar. Yes, that was the end of it. But all along the road, on the route to Rome, there were things like the shipwreck on Malta. And those things were by no mistake. The Euroclidon that happened, the prince of the power of the air says, I'm going to destroy this ship because I want to destroy Paul and everybody with him. And God says, try it. Go for it. Let's see what you got, big guy. God, God had a different plan. No coincidences. But at the end of Matthew 14, it says, And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the same boat, who were in the boat, came and they worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I mean, really? You just saw him do all these other miracles before, and now you're saying, Truly, you're the Son of God? And I, I'm, I'm encouraged by this because they were continually learning who Jesus was, just like you and I. I'm continually learning who Jesus is. And I'm learning how great he is, how his grace and his mercy, how great that is. 
And you are too. As time goes on, he's revealing these things in and through our lives, through circumstances, through trials and tribulations, and, and getting us through those things. He's revealing all of these things, isn't he? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Isn't he the king of kings? Doesn't he deserve praise and honor? Amen. Amen. He deserves it. He deserves it. But Jesus had power over it all. And then in verse 21, now back into our text in verse 21 of John chapter 6. It says, Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. Mark's gospel tells us that they came to Gennesaret. Remember this? um, They were going to Capernaum there in the north part. But now they ended up in Gennesaret. Mark's gospel and Matthew's tells us that. They were way off course by a mile or two. When was the last time you prayerfully stepped out in faith? And I have to ask myself the same question. It's an important question to ask as we wrap up here. When was the last time, notice that I said prayerfully, not just stepping out in faith and stepping out in foolishness. You know what I'm talking about. You can be impetuous and think, well, I'm just going to step out in faith. Well, you'd better pray about that. If God is confirming in your heart through the word and even giving you that still small voice in your heart and through other circumstances, you pray. And then when you feel like you've got sufficient understanding of his heart and his will, then, then you step out. And you will be surprised at what God can do when you step out in faith. As Peter stepped out of that boat, he had never done that before. Certainly the other men were thinking, he's going down. But Jesus didn't have a problem. He could have said, all of you guys, jump out of the boat. Just jump. I'll sustain all of you. You could do it. Because I'm with you. If I'm not with you, you're in trouble. But it doesn't the Bible say that Jesus is Emmanuel? God with us. I want God to be with me. Do you want God to be with you? Do you know that he can and will be with you? He wants to be with you. He wants that fellowship. Do you want to have that fellowship with him, though? See, he desires that always, but the, 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 the block, the stumbling block is in my own heart because I don't always want him. I want to do my own thing. Or maybe because of experience and schooling or whatever, I think that I can do it. Why not, instead of relying on your own skills and abilities, especially the things that you're very comfortable with. Invoke the Lord in those things and say, Lord, I know that I could probably do this, but you know what? I'm not going to take anything for granted. I ask, Lord, for your help. Help me with this. You humble yourself before the Lord, and then what? He will lift you up, and he will see it through. I want to be like that, don't you? Those times when you sense the Lord urging you, but you were paralyzed by the what ifs. 
and the natural obstacles. What did Jesus say in Matthew 21? We're coming, we're wrapping this up. He says, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither so soon, Jesus? And Jesus answered and said to them, assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but also if you say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever things you ask in prayer, believing, there's the key, in prayer, believing, you will receive. Pray and don't be afraid. Pray and don't be afraid. Repeat after me. Pray and don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. But don't step out in impetuousness. No, you step out, notice, in prayer. And anything you do, you pray, and you believe, and you pray some more. And when God gives you that green light, you step out and see what happens. Because his purposes are bigger than anything you and I can imagine. And see, I knew in my heart when I was sitting there in my hammock overlooking Lake Sacandaga, the Lord could have allowed me to walk on water. But why did I ask? What was my motive behind it? He could have. He's able. But what would, it, what would the purpose be? I know he's God. If I was in a real calamity out on that ocean and it was, or on that, on that sea, on that lake or whatever, if I was in a real pinch and I was out there by myself and a storm came up and it was necessary for him to keep me alive, he'll keep me alive. If, if, even to the point of it means me walking on water, he can do it. Or he might have a big log prepared for me nearby where I could grab onto and float to shore. Either way, pray and don't be afraid. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'll leave you with one final verse. Hebrews 13 verse 8 what does it say Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever he hasn't changed he doesn't need to change he cannot change but you and I Christians that we change we're changing all the time hopefully we're changing from glory to glory we're being sanctified it's a process it takes us a lifetime we're we are changing God never changes I love that because what he was able to do in any saint in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, he is able and willing to do for you if necessary for whatever purpose he has. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this scripture, this passage. Lord, we thank you that you are almighty God and you have command over the universe. You have the command over nature. You have command over physics because you created physics. There's nothing too small or too great for you, Lord. You who spoke and the world was. When something that wasn't came to being, came to being immediately based upon your creative power and your genius. And Lord, we thank you for that. 
We know that you're the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Lord, please encourage our faith and strengthen us as we sometimes are, have, are led out onto the water. When we are led out to seemingly impossible things, impossible circumstances according to the natural God, would you please show yourself strong to us? Lord, to this body of believers, this week, Lord, would you do that? Reveal to us your power. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Jesus loves you. He loves you. God bless you.